Welcome to BitCast on Podcast One, the video game podcast with the Axeman. Welcome back to the show. I'm back at it again with cheesy number references. Of course I had to talk about this game during the 101st episode. What, are you crazy? The Wonderful 101 is about as platinum games as you can get while still being a Nintendo property. Well, Platinum developed the game, and you can see their Platinum-isms coursing through its veins to the point where their company logo is a plot point. Nintendo were still the publishers, and they own the rights to the game. To compare this to past Platinum outings, or possibly even Clover outings, this game has some of Okami's gameplay and Beautiful Joe's design while your most important moves are based on drawing shapes, and the protagonists look like futuristic versions of Beautiful Joe characters. Wonder Blue's civilian identity in particular looks kind of like the unmasked Beautiful Joe. More on the Nintendo game side of things, I'd say this game resembles Pikmin, in the sense that you're taking a minuscule leader and wandering around with a swarm of up to 100 itty-bitty people following behind you. Though it's less that the characters are small in this game, the scenery and the monsters are just huge. Aesthetically, The Wonderful 101 has a comic book vibe going for it, with a futuristic tinge. Everyone is a superhero with their own secret identities, and they have to save the city and surrounding locations from alien conquerors. The top priority is action and spectacle, as usual for Platinum. There are a few attempts at emotion and tragic backstories, but I didn't get a whole lot from watching those. I feel like there was an attempt, but it came across as something that was just kind of wedged in there. The very first scene of the game's introductory level is the protagonist remembering his father being killed, and I think it's kind of tacky to just slam you with their tragic backstory so immediately, especially when the game just gets really silly from the second moment onward. Later in the game, they do give proper context to that flashback, and it fits better into the story arc for that level, but it's still a bold way to start the whole game. What doesn't help is the game sometimes undermining itself, inserting a snippy one-liner in the middle of an otherwise dramatic scene. As for the story, there's not much plot to be had. There's only one real meaningful twist, in my opinion, and even then they don't do much with it. Spoiler warning just in case from here on, though. I don't think you're really gonna lose out on too much. So, the plot of the game, before we get into the actual spoilery part, is that aliens are invading. Their organization is called Geth Jerk. It's an acronym, and it means Guild of Evil Aliens Terrorizing Humans with Gigawatt Bombs, that's Gigawatt with a J, Energy Beams, Ray Guns, and Killer Lasers. Only a few of those words count towards the acronym. You get the feeling that the writers started with the name Geth Jerk and worked backwards from there. This outrageous name and its true meaning has been a big reason why the game is so silly and why I have a hard time buying some of its attempts at pathos. 
There's a moment toward the middle, and it becomes more apparent later on. You learn that Geth Jerk actually comes from the future, and they want to destroy the protagonist because they would go on to create an evil dictator organization that would control the galaxy. So all these guys are just trying to go back in time and stop the people who would eventually terror. I'm sorry, I can't hear you over the fact that you called yourself the Guild of Evil Aliens Terrorizing Humans. Perhaps it's not so much that the aliens are meant to be misunderstood heroes, but rather that the futuristic versions of the protagonists are just that bad. I don't know, but it feels like they wanted to go for some higher intrigue, some gray morality, but then didn't do anything with it. They just stuck with a simple black-and-white narrative. Overlord Jerginga actually seems at least remotely nuanced compared to all his henchmen, but he's not in the game for very long, and he's still pretty menacing when he is there. So who are our protagonists, anyway? It'll be easier to talk about the game once we actually get them established. It's just that the, the whole Geth Jerk stuff always stuck out to me, and it kind of bugged me. I really wanted to address that. But the superhero organization meant to defend the Earth is the Sentinels, and... Like Geth Jerk, Sentinels is in all caps, but I don't really know if Sentinels stands for anything. I think they just wanted to go for the wordplay with Sentinel and then Sent for the prefix of 100. They have a team of superheroes called the Wonderful 100. It's written out as 100. So who is the 101st then? Well, in some cases, it's you, the player. But in the epilogue chapter, they actually recruit a new character, so it's referring to them. Each of the Wonderful Ones is a person recruited from a different city and trained to become a superhero. If you check in the menus, they all do have their own stats, their own names, their backstories, all that kind of fun stuff. And while the Wonderful Ones all know each other's secret identities, it is, of course, highly classified for civilians. But there are seven main Wonderful Ones, and they're the only ones who are named after colors. They also represent one of each of the seven main weapon types. In order, we have Wonder Red, the rookie leader. He's very earnest and noble. He's the kind of guy who would read an instruction manual, even though he knows what to do. Total Paragon. He comes from the game's starting city, an original location called Blossom City. He uses the Unite Hand, which is good for grabbing and punching. So he's nicknamed the Crimson Fist. Here comes the Crimson Fist. And to get this out of the way, Unite Morph is an ability that allows multiple Wonderful Ones to form together into the shape of various weapons. So Wonder Red has this giant energy hand, and there's people inside there. This is also where the shape drawing comes in. You draw a circle to use the Unite Hand. And for all the different weapons, you'll draw a different shape that signifies that one. And they get really creative with some of them. Wonder Blue is a surfer cop from L.A., and he uses the Unite Sword, granting him the moniker the Supersonic Sword. Funny enough, he's voiced by Sonic the Hedgehog's current voice actor. Blue's dealt with Geth Jerk in the past and doesn't take kindly to Wonder Red being named as the leader of the operation. 
Very traditional leader versus sidekick feud. It comes to a head when Red and Blue actually have a duel in World 4, and he kind of gets over it, but doesn't really start to respect Red until sometime during World 6. Wonder Green is a boy from Bordeaux, and his weapon is the Unite Gun, so he's called Le Sniper Supérieur. I am not French at all. That's not true. I have a little French in me, but not enough to know the pronunciation. While most Unite Morph weapons form into some kind of bludgeon or blade, the Unite Gun fires wonderful ones as bullets, meaning you should watch your ammo. He's a plus-sized lad, always munching on some new junk food in each chapter, and he propagates a lot of insult volleys between Blue and himself, despite their age difference. Even though he's a child, he was still allowed to be in the wonderful 100, and you'll quickly find that they'll let anyone in. Wonder Pink is, stereotypically enough, the only girl among the main seven. She's a teen gymnast from Romania and uses the Unite Whip. Her code name is the Queen of Rage. Also, I think as a fun fact, her whip is said to be made out of Belmont alloy. Had to sneak in some Castlevania there. Despite Blue and Green's bickering, she's actually the sassiest of the bunch, and always has something to say to whomever the team is encountering. Also, she has a soft spot for kids, namely this little boy named Luca, who gets wrapped up in the entire plot. More on him later. Wonder Yellow is a gentle giant, but a big man nonetheless, hailing from Siberia. He uses the Unite Hammer and is nicknamed the Hammering Ruski, so you'll never forget that he's the Russian character. And that's all you really get to know about him. Starting with Yellow, the main characters feel more like glorified side characters than the heroes of their own story. Wonder White is a stoic, proverb-spouting man from Shinshu, Japan, which may be a nod to Okami. He uses the Unite Claw and is voiced by Yuri Lowenthal, doing a very fake Japanese accent. The same one he did for Anarchy Reigns. He has the coolest code name, being the Claws of Calamity. Wonder Black, a child even younger than Green. His abilities are actually purple, despite his code name, and he's from New Delhi. He's always playing video games to the point where, other than maybe one or two instances and universal things like battle cries, he doesn't actually have any lines in this game. He's too busy gaming. That's why his codename is the 8-Bit Enchanter. His power is the Unite Bomb, which slows down time for everything in the blast range, allowing for more combos on enemies or solving certain puzzles. He's also good with machines. Those are our main characters, and by that I mean that Red, Blue, Green, and Pink are the main characters. White sometimes has something to say, Yellow is just kind of there, and Black is a prop. There are side characters and antagonists, and they get more development and prominence than Wonder Yellow does. And they're inoffensive, serviceable arcs. I actually liked how Prince Vorkin changed over the course of the game. Or, as he's commonly referred to, heir to the throne of the roaming Rulo, leader of the space pirate band known across the universe as the Gaizok. Prince Vorkin!
He has the typical platinum rival thing going for him. His henchmen have some depth, and his sister is perennially helpful to the Wonderful Ones. Then there's Luca, an annoying brat who hates the Sentinels at first, but comes to change his tune over time. It's a lot like Luca from Bayonetta, almost beat for beat. Except exaggerated in some cases, and he's a kid. And more annoying. Going back to what I said about the Sentinels letting anyone join their ranks, I mean it. There are some really esoteric heroes in there, and you'll find them all throughout the game. They have their own variations on the seven main Unite Morph weapons. You get a lot of different people like Wonder Kung Fu, Wonder Chef, Wonder Sailor, and then you get some weird ones like Wonder Beer, who's drunk all the time. You get Wonder Astronaut, a monkey. You get Wonder Babe, a literal, a literal baby. baby. And then you get some really insane ones, like Wonder Santa and Wonder Death. No points for guessing who their civilian identities are. On top of that, a few Platinum and Clover characters sneak in. Wonder Cheerleader is secretly Sylvia from Beautiful Joe, while Bayonetta, Jean, and Rodan from Bayonetta... Uh, well, it sounds kind of weird when I say it like that. They're also bonus members of the Wonderful 100. You can get a few bonus characters, including some cutscene-only characters, like your mission control, so the final tally is actually somewhere close to, I'd say, 120 or so? Maybe 220, based on certain plot point? I don't really remember the number, but definitely a lot more than 101. On top of all these cameos, Hideki Kamiya himself appears as Wonder Director, and he gets a Unite Morph that's unique to himself and Wonder Goggles. It is the Unite Goggles. Nailed it. They shoot laser beams. And while these heroes are not any of the main seven, you can play as all of them, and they all have their stat differences. Maybe... A properties of their Unite Morph weapon are a little different from the color characters. It's worth experimenting, though I think the main seven are generally going to be the go-to characters. This is a very referential game. On top of everything I mentioned, the Unite Bomb is drawn in the same way as Amaterasu's bomb ability from Okami, but with the effects of her time-slowing ability instead. There's also the unlockable Hero Time ability, which is just Bayonetta's Witch Time with another name. And after playing the Bayonetta series finally, I notice optional side areas with weird combat gimmicks. It's a straight lift from the Alfheim and Niflheims from the Bayonetta duology. This game also lifts the Bayonetta series' tendency to give you simplified rank battles during the credits. Over on the Nintendo side of things, one of the locations is called Low Rule, and this was a couple years before a Link to the Past. And this was a couple years before a Link Between Worlds did it. It also sounds a little less ridiculous in this game because this game's already silly. And what got me to pay attention to the game was the fact that at least once there's a boss fight that operates almost exactly like a Punch-Out opponent. These references all feel cute and fun, and not too forced. There are a lot of references to Platinum Games themselves, which is a little egotistical, but with a cool name like that, I can't really blame them for it. So, I can pick up the vibe that this is a passion project and not some 
soulless moneymaker like Ready Player One. Oh, and another reference I gotta point out, World 9 has a Space Harrier parody, really faithful to the original game too, and this is after Hideki Kamiya got flack for the Space Harrier level in Bayonetta 1. Total power move. Love it. It's also worth mentioning that, in true Platinum self-referential tradition, Bayonetta 2 features a tiny nod to this game when she says the phrase, Diplomacy has failed at one point. This is a very creative game. That is one of the first words I would use to describe it. Another word would be difficult. The way it mixes the Pikmin swarming, the Okami drawing, the Bayonetta Platinum combos, the comic book world, it's all just very creative. Even if the dramatic moments fall flat at times, some of them do stick the landing. And to top it all off, it's an original Nintendo title in a pre-Splatoon world. So the fact that they were taking a risk on a new idea was pretty cool. Too bad it didn't work. The game flopped. First, it was already on the Wii U. There was no chance. Second, the game wasn't marketed that well. No TV commercials whatsoever. Maybe a bit of online advertising. There was a Nintendo Direct for the game, but eh. This was when they were trying to push the eShop a little bit more, so they were trying to sell this game digitally, and of course it came out close to Grand Theft Auto V. One almost gets the idea that Nintendo was sabotaging this game. Nintendo's decisions during the Wii U era baffle my mind, honestly. It'd be great to see this game get a new lease on life on the Nintendo Switch version of some kind. And like many Platinum titles, it gets really hard. Maybe Nintendo's loyal audience at the time wasn't ready for a difficult Platinum game. I, I mean, I don't know. They sold Bayonetta 2 on it, so they had to be doing something right with this one. But still, it is worth mentioning, this might be one of the hardest of all the Platinum games. games. I can't verify that, of course, but that's something I've been picking up. It's definitely a bit trickier to control since you've got that entire mob and everything is so tiny and you also have that drawing element. Just a few more layers than what they had with Okami. This game is left as something of a modern cult classic, I'd say. A nickname I've seen for this game is The Wonderful 101 Copies Sold. I like that all seven of the main Wonderful Ones got trophies in Smash Brothers for Wii U, got the game a little bit more attention, but sadly, only Red and Blue made appearances as spirits in Smash Brothers Ultimate. Really, if you don't want to go through the trouble of playing this game and getting a Wii U and all that, I'd recommend looking up Chip Cheesum's Let's Play of the game. It's very thorough. Hideki Kamiya himself even liked it, so really check it out. I think it does the game justice, and that's how I experienced the game. I did actually play it myself for a little while, but then I stopped because I had too many other games at the time. Interesting thing about the game is the music! I bought the soundtrack on iTunes about four or five years ago. Well, some of the songs on it. And now the soundtrack is gone. No longer available digitally at the time of this recording. And there is no physical edition, so good luck listening to this game's music. 
I guess there's YouTube. Oh, wait, no. Nintendo doesn't want you to post music on YouTube. Mixed messages, guys. How am I going to get wonderful 101 music if you won't make it available? Lucky for me, I already bought all the songs I really care about, but that's still a pretty heavy loss. Which leads me to today's favorite songs. If you can find them. While not a favorite song, I have to give a shout-out to The Unstoppable Wonderful 100, which is the theme song of The Wonderful 100. Surprising, I know. It plays throughout the introductory level. It really sounds like it would be the opening theme if Wonderful 101 was a cartoon on Saturday mornings. My real favorite songs are, in true form to myself, all associated with fights. First would be Table's Turn, a piece that starts to kick in during boss fights when you have the upper hand and the enemy is almost dead. This is a thing in boss themes that always gets me excited. Another favorite is Late Game Boss Theme, which appears in some cutscenes. The name of this track is a long one, so bear with me. Pegasus Class Gimme Custom Assault Mech Gigagujin. This boss has the most gravitas surrounding it so out of all the boss fights yet when you're fighting it. Even if the battle has a little bit of silliness going on for it, this is one of the times where the game absolutely nails the desperate atmosphere. I didn't mention this before, but the game does a neat trick where, to signify the shift of the story getting darker, everyone retains their battle damage from the boss fight of World 6. They stay all scratched and dinged up for the rest of the game until the epilogue. And lastly is the final boss theme, which was also featured in Super Smash Bros. for Wii U and Ultimate. Jerginga, Planet Destruction Form. It's a sweeping orchestral piece, even though the game was done with a synthetic orchestra. It captures the grandness of the game's scale, but, but also captures a little bit of that heart that the story likes to say it has. A worthy final battle theme for a worthy final battle. It is one of the craziest fights in the whole game. And this is a platinum game, so you know that's saying something. There are more good songs, too. And if you can find them, I'd recommend giving them a listen, if you can. And that's about all I have to say about the wonderful 101. Of course I had to do it on this episode. I already said that, but come on. When else would I ever talk about this and not think, oh, I should have done it on that episode. Ah. This is a game that maybe 101 people have actually played. I don't think that number is going to go up anytime soon. So, really just talked about this for the fact that it aligned with the episode of the show. But if they do re-release the game, then it has my seal of approval. If you like the BitCast, then you can follow it on Twitter. The account name is the show's name. It's the BitCast, you know. Same logo and everything. I post just about every day. New BitCast episodes every Thursday. You follow it on Podcast One's website and app. I'm also trying to look into getting the show on YouTube, so... If in the distant future you're watching this on YouTube, I guess you can kind of get a feel for when this might have been now. <laughs> With that, anyway, I'll see you on the next one.
Listen to Bidcast anytime on podcast1.com and on the Podcast One app.